Exodus chapter 2. I'm reading from the ESV. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she, laid, she hid him three months. She, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with the bitumen of, and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to the Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to, end, to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so, so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. And she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and, he, and God knew. And then Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23 through 25. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Denver and Dawn, thank you. You're a blessing to our church and your continued efforts leading Open Door Christian School. I marvel at both of you. Thank you very much. So we continue in our journey through Exodus, and I want us to think about today 
the intersection of leadership and crisis. You see, that's a matter that uh, doesn't only concern Christians, but I think it fascinates a lot of us. In other words, that when bad times come, uh, do the bad times actually create good leaders? Or alternatively, what I hope we see, I think more biblical view, is that God raises up just the right people at just the right time to do his bidding in the context that he wants them in. So for example, and you know, would Churchill have been Churchill without the Third Reich? Now you say, well, did the Third Reich kind of make Churchill into the leader that he was? Or alternatively, did God raise up that man uh, in that time, in that place to work his means? And I say that is a biblical theme, God raising up uh, believers and non-believers to carry forth uh, what he wants done in a time and a place. So we've got the crisis, uh, which I'll explore in a minute, but today we're introduced to the leader, aren't we? That you get that little line there in the middle of chapter two, we see his name, Moses. See, I don't think uh, there's not, it's already been spoiled for most of us because we watched the Ten Commandments and the Prince of Egypt. You say, this Moses is going to amount to something. Uh, he's gonna dominate the narrative, so you know what's coming, but there's the great leader. Uh, whom we're introduced to in Exodus chapter two. So we've got the leader and we've got the crisis. Let's just review the crisis for a moment. There's one story, the Bible tells one story. God's uh, buying back, redeeming a people for himself, right? Each one of us have gone our own way and God says, I'm gonna redeem a people for my, myself, uh, for my glory through the chosen instrument of his son, the Lord Jesus. And we're left uh, with this hanging promise from the first book of the Bible, Genesis. So God's gonna raise up a people and he's gonna establish them in a land. And in that land, they're gonna flourish and the way that they relate to the true God is gonna provoke all the nations to follow the one true God. So you've got this promise hanging in Genesis uh, that God's gonna establish his people in the land. And you say, well, why is it a crisis? Because for 400 years, God's people have been scattered. They've not been in a land and they've not been a cohesive unit that they say, you know, kind of out uh, wanderers, sojourners. And in fact, matters are getting worse. That's what we looked at last week, right? That a new Pharaoh who knew not Joseph is in power and God's people are oppressed that he allows his people to go through difficult times. Never has that promise, right? After 400 years, never has that promise seemed so far away. Pharaoh is treating God's people ruthlessly. There's slave labor. There's a new edict that's gone to the extreme of genocide. God, have you remembered your promise? And I think as we see ourselves in light of that, right, as we are the covenant people of God, uh, it can feel that way sometimes. God, here we are, you know, I, I don't know why my life is so hard. You seem so very distant. Are you in it? Are you real? And Exodus is going to make the claim, oh, don't you worry, God's in control. He knows what he's doing. His timing is perfect. So that's the crisis. How's this gonna be resolved? Will the people make it back to the land? How are they gonna get there? What's gonna happen with all this oppression? And enter Moses. And what we'll see today is that Moses is prepared by God for the great task that is ahead of him. You read our chapter and it's got some interesting things in it, doesn't it? I mean, the way that Moses is rescued out of the Nile and these uh, different altercations. And as I read this this week, I asked the question that I ask every week, and that is, why did God give us this passage? What is this doing here, if you will? What's the application for our congregation? Those kinds of questions, and I was tremendously helped. I must say, I read chapter two, it wasn't that clear as to how we should talk this morning. And then you turn over to the New Testament. You see, there are two New Testament writers that write at length about Exodus 2. 
That in our second reading, isn't it interesting that the writer of the Hebrews in the Hall of Faith draws our attention back to here, this episode with Moses and his parents and him being exiled to Midian, say it features quite prominently in the Hall of Faith. But then also, you can review this this week, I'll be going here uh, several times this morning, but in Acts chapter 7. So you can think back, you know your Bibles well enough, you say Stephen, one of these early followers of Jesus, is proclaiming the good news of the gospel and he's rounded up by the Jewish council. And Stephen is put on the witness stand and what Stephen does as he testifies is he goes through what we would call the Old Testament narrative. He kind of recapitulates all of what the Bible says, that he's on the stand and he delivers this magnificent speech. And I found it fascinating this week that so much of that speech is about Exodus chapter two. And so again, think about this this week. I'll read it now. Again, longer passage, but this is for the impact of the direction we're going. This is Acts chapter 7, verse 17. Stephen, one of the early followers of Jesus, at trial. But as the time of the promise drew near, again, what's the promise? That God would establish a people in his land. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham... The people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph, exactly what we talked about last week. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up uh, as her own son. And then importantly, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Now he supposed, Moses supposed, that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust Moses aside, saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now that, to me, is rather extraordinary. That all the things that Stephen on the witness stand, right, he's about to, you know, he's fighting for his life here, all the things that he wants to go over and how God has worked historically, again, 1,500 years after Moses, he really fixates on the events of Exodus chapter 2. And in reading that, you could say uh, Acts 7 and Hebrews 11 are a bit like infallible commentaries on Exodus 2. And what we're supposed to see, I think one of the things we're supposed to see is how God prepared Moses for the ministry that he had in store for him. And I do believe that for every Christ follower today, that God has a ministry for us. He has an arena in which we're to live for him. 
and God equips his followers, he prepares his leaders for the challenges ahead so they have just the right tools to do what God wants them to do. So think here today about how God prepares Moses and how he might prepare each one of us for the task that is before us. So the first thing, again, we wanna draw our attention to the end of chapter one, beginning of chapter two, and what we'll see is that Moses, from start to finish, is a man who is saved and guided by faith. By the grace of God, he apprehends this, uh, his parents, and he does by faith. So remember the context from 122, that as the Israelites are uh, rising numerically, Pharaoh's angry, he goes to an extreme, right? He says, this, all this uh, you know, enslaving them and treating, mistreating them uh, is not getting it done. We've gotta take it a step further or many steps further, and he, he calls for a genocide. Uh, that there's an edict to say we will just wipe out the Hebrew race. It was gonna work this way. Every Hebrew boy that was born, uh, he would be tossed into the Nile and drown. The girls would be allowed to live so the Egyptian men could mate with the women. And over time, the Hebrews would die out and there would only be Egypt left. So Pharaoh calls for a genocide that all the boys born to the Hebrews shall be cast into the Nile. So here you're Moses' parents. So you imagine how happy they were. So we all love when people are, right, about to have a baby in the church, you know the excitement, say, here they come, how many more weeks? And you could imagine Moses' parents, here we have a new child to welcome into the world, only not really. That if the child was a little girl, that she would have been shipped off and done the bidding of some Egyptian man. But worse yet, if a little boy came out, he said he's probably not gonna make it very long. He'd be taken away and drowned. What a terrible thing. And yet they are about to give birth, you can imagine, and who's going to come out? Now comes a little boy. So what are they going to do? And what they decide to do is very interesting, is that they, after three months, make a little bit of a boat that with a little bit of pitch and some papyrus, they say, rather than having the Egyptian guard come and take our son and drown him, at least let's, by faith, by faith, let's try to help him a little bit. And so they make a little boat. You can imagine how painful. Take him down to the Nile River, try to protect him from some currents, and you put that little boy down in the water, your little son, hoping there might be a better future for him than drowning. And so here's where we get a lot of help from our second reading. You remember Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 23. You say, how are we to interpret this act of the parents putting Moses down in this little basket in the river? And what we're told in Hebrews 11 and verse 23, that Moses' parents did this by faith that they had hope and faith. You can see even the way this narrative uh, reads, you can say, well, all babies are cute, but there was something about this boy. It's as if the parents looked into his eyes, say, this child seems to be destined for great things. Lord, if there's any other way, if there's any other way to save his life. So they make this little basket and put him down among the reeds on the side of the river, hoping uh, against all odds uh, that this child would, would make it. You know, in this, it's bizarre to us. You say, well, what, what, you know, what, is, what are we to make of the parents of this? I think there's a huge lesson for us. A lot of us have been there where we have children that we wish we could do more for, that we feel so uh, outside of, uh, you know, what we're able to do for them, or, or maybe worse yet, that we have a child who's sick. And you come back and back again to this biblical principle, right, that we're stewards of our children, that God, I want to point this child to you, uh, that you, in a way that I have them on loan from you, God, and I want to uh, trust in faith, right? That I don't want to worry, I don't want to be anxious, I certainly want to do all that I can, but I offer the child right to you, Lord. That's a little bit what Moses' parents do here. By faith, God, we love our little boy. 
This is a, a situation no parent wants to be in, but we understand that we're stewards, and Lord, if it is your will, we hope and we pray, and by faith, you have our little boy. And boy, did God do that, didn't he? God said, I got that little boy. I got, I got plans for that little boy, as he has plans for every one of his followers. We're stewards. Moses' parents, by faith, put this boy down into the river. Now, it just so happens, now who finds him? There's a lot of Egyptians. I mean, who could find him? You know, maybe the parents were tactful enough to put him by the river where Pharaoh's family bathed, but he's picked up by, of all the people in the empire, Pharaoh's daughter. Say, well, that's rather fortunate. You say, here's where the secular would say, oh, that's lucky. Say, no, that's not lucky. This is the providential hand of God. And by the way, for those of you, you know, in banking, who's you ever asked who's the greatest financier in the Bible? You see, you point to Pharaoh's daughter. You see, he or she goes down to the bank of the Nile and drew out a little prophet. Uh, so you uh, keep that one in your back pocket. <laughs> so Pharaoh's daughter goes down to bathe. And she sees that little boy down there. She sees the same thing the parents did. And isn't this remarkable? You say, when it gets down, you know, our, we, we get this wedge going down in society, this group against this group. I have found this to be actually much more truthful, that when you're face-to-face -face with people, uh, ethnic divides really aren't there. And Pharaoh's daughter looks at this Hebrew boy, sees what a beautiful baby boy is, no doubt prompted by God, and says, he's going to be with me. And lo and behold, miraculously, he's even nursed by his own mother. Again, you say, you can look at this, say, well, happy accident, right? This is luck. No, it's not luck. It's the providential hand of God. And then a little help from Stephen in Acts 7. You say, what does this do for Moses, really, that he's brought up by Pharaoh's daughter? That Moses, consequently, in the Egyptian court is, Acts 7.22, instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds. In other words, this has tremendous advantages for Moses precisely for the role that God is gonna call him to in the future. And doesn't God work this way? What did Paul do before he was converted? Say, so, well, he was a Pharisee. He was an expert in the Bible. Pretty handy for what God called Paul to do. What did Augustine do before he was converted? He was a professor of rhetoric. So that's pretty handy, too, if you're going to go on to write all this influential theology. Say, so, what about St. Patrick? You say, being captured by the Irish, coming back to be educated in England. Well, guess what? He went back to the Irish. Luther, what was he before converted? He was an Augustinian monk. Very helpful to know Augustine's writing against the Pelagians when you're taking that up against the Roman Catholic church. And how about C.S. Lewis in the Academy of Oxford as a hardened atheist? Again, very helpful for what God called him to do. God has a way of allowing men and women to be prepared in ways that they don't fully see in certain arenas so that they might be equipped for just the task that he has for them. Now let's be honest here, go back to the timeline. 400 years. A lot of baby boy, a lot of Hebrew boys were born in 400 years. Quite frankly, a lot, I would, I would just has to be a lot more talented than Moses. You say Moses isn't particularly talented in, in, the, in the raw sense of the term. Say there were a lot of talented Hebrew boys born. What matters here is not that. What matters here is that God, at just the right time, rose up his man by his means, providentially gave him just what he needs to lead in the time and the season and the context that he wants him to lead. And so it is for each one of us. God prepares us. He molds us for the ministry that we have, and we can rest in that. Now, moreover, that this idea of being drawn out of the waters, 
becomes a metaphor in the Bible for salvation itself. Have a read, I've got these in the notes, but Psalm 18, 16, 2 Samuel 22, 17. That David in particular will talk about God drawing him out of the waters uh, unto life. You see, friends, we're not that unlike Moses when we come into the world. That we come in clenching our fist against God, doing life our own way, it's an intimidating world out there. There's a lot of uh, alligators and currents and enemies. There's a lot that can go wrong, and we're kind of floated out there in space, but but the grace of God, but by the grace of God that comes down to each one of us. Say, so if you're a Christ follower, I hope you feel that way. See, I was lost and doing my own thing, just plowing through life, trying to get ahead of the, the person to my left and my right, uh, just kind of floating down there, and it's a little bit scary until God reached down in Jesus and quickened my heart and drew me out of those waters, so to speak, to put me forth, to put my feet on the rock and give me direction in life, and more than that, reconciliation with God in the end. The point here is how does God prepare Moses? The first thing that he teaches him is that God's grace transforms everything and that you apprehend that by faith to lead in difficult times, in times of crisis, to lead for Jesus' sake in difficult times, we have to be absolutely committed to the grace of God. Are we where we're at because we're cleverer than the others? We get to live in nice places because we've outpaced all the rest? Are we here because God in his kindness has reached down and prepared me and set my feet on the rock of the Lord Jesus so that I have the privilege of representing him in my context for the short time that I have. That's the point. God's leaders, all of us, those of us who are Christians in the room, in our places, we must comprehend God's grace and his kindness and the faith that we should have in him. And Moses, again, learns this at a young age. So faith, grace, these huge categories, important for how Moses is prepared for what he's about to do. Okay, bold heading number two in the notes. Do you notice how... In chapter 2, there's a little bit, and we'll see this last week I talked about this. There's a little bit of tug of war as to whether Moses is, on the one hand, is, is he Egyptian or is he Hebrew? Say, so how do you answer that question? See, um, where it's clear that he's a Hebrew baby, that is, ethnically he's Hebrew, verse 6 and verse 11, that as his mom nursed him, she told him that you're actually not Egyptian, you're Hebrew. And yet at the same time, look at verse 10, that he's a son of Pharaoh's daughter. And then when he goes down into Midian, verse 19, that he's recognized as an Egyptian, no doubt because of his dress and because of his speech. Even his name Moses, I mean, I'm trying this week to you know, pin down the grammarians. No one really knows if this is an Egyptian name or a Hebrew name. You say M-O-S-E is a very common suffix on Egyptian names, and yet it sounds a lot like the Hebrew verb to draw out. So even in his name, we kind of see this tug of war. Is this baby going to be Egyptian or is he going to be Hebrew? Now, why do we think that's important? Remember last week. All through Exodus, there's a clear line of demarcation between the way the, the world lives, as represented by Egypt, and the way that God's people live. You're going to have a great competition in Exodus. On the one hand, you're going to have Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the Mediterranean world, kind of pitted against the true God. Say, who's going to win? Where are, the, where are the people going to go? Which way do we live? Do we live like the world lives? Or are we with God? Are we on that side? And so Moses is kind of perfectly positioned in between these two. Would he grow up? in the Egyptian court, taking advantage, those considerable advantages, those, that life of luxury? Or would he, as Hebrew says, by faith, lead his people, sacrificing the life of pleasure in the court to lead God's people. And I think that too comes to each one of us. 
world has a lot of pleasure. Say, so didn't we, again, say we wouldn't have the problems that we say, world has a lot of pleasure. Who are we fooling? So there's a lot of things that we can take advantage of. Some things about this lifestyle that actually are a lot better than, than the sacrifice required of following Jesus. Are we going to just kind of go with the flow? Are we going to be over here? See, actually, I'm with the Lord Jesus. And that looks different. I live for him. There's a, a different conduct. There's a way of behaving. And so Moses, what he's going to do is he's going to say, I, I don't want all those luxuries in the Egyptian court and living that way. Actually, I'm going to be with God and lead his people as he would have me lead them. Now, three instances in chapter two again. Three instances of injustice. Did you catch that? They come in quick succession. So again, uh, chapter two, verse 11, when Moses sees firstly an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And he intervenes and he defends his fellow Hebrew, uh, ultimately killing the Egyptian, which was not the right thing to do. I think we see that from the fact that Moses looked to make sure no one else was there and he buried the body. So he knows this is wrong, but deep down, Moses has a strong, uh, visceral reaction to stand up with the people of God, to say there's something really on the line with being committed to the true God, that it's not a casual affair, but he stands up saying, no, this is not right, and God's people are to prevail and be defended. Now, right on the heels of that, you say that that's the first instance of injustice. Moses stands up. Then the next day, what happens? He sees two Hebrews fighting. And again, Moses feels compelled to intervene, to try to make peace. He's saying something like, we as God's people don't behave this way. And that will end badly. We'll see, but we'll go back to that in a moment. But a second instance of injustice where Moses stands up for what is right among the people of God. And thirdly, uh, when he's in Midian, and importantly, Midian, uh, the people there do worship the true God. So that's the question. Were they polytheists? No, the Midianites worship the true God. And as Moses is down there, he sees these Midianite women being picked on by some shepherds. Say this now, verses 16 and 17. And notice Moses stood up and saved them. So three instances in Exodus chapter 2 of Moses standing with the people of God as if something's really on the line and something to fight for. And so how do you think that applies maybe to our own context again? Well, this whole business about doing, doing things in a worldly, fleshly manner, it doesn't really matter. Uh, God doesn't care. I'm just going to blend in and kind of, you know, live a life uh, in the proverbial Egyptian court here in the Avon court, uh, do my own thing. Uh, it doesn't really matter. And I, I'm a casual attender of, of that place on Detroit Road. Say, no, um, there's serious consequences when we forget about God and do our own thing. And we should be drawn say, God really is doing something among his people. He's called each one of us to lead for his sake, that there's something on the line. It's in fact, in his, from his view, from all of us, eternity is on the line. We want to stand up and live for Christ and live to drive forward the people of God. In these scenes, you say in chapter 2, I can only compare this with a sports analogy when, when the commentators, like, you know, they draft a young guy and they'll say things like, well, he's got a lot of raw skills, but he's not refined. You know, you ever hear them say, he just needs a, you know, a few more years in the minor leagues or a little bit more on the practice squad, or, you know, he's going to be a backup until he develops. It's a little bit like that in Exodus 2, isn't it? You say, Moses has the right instincts. And in the instance with the Egyptian, the wrong application, but the raw skills are there that he defends the people of God. He feels a real attachment to what God is doing. And so what we're seeing here is that Moses identifies with the people of God. So two leadership principles. Moses understands God's grace. 
He understands apprehending what God has for him by faith. And so it is for every faithful member of the covenant community ever since that we must comprehend God's grace and apprehend it by faith. Secondly, that Moses identifies with the people of God and really wants to lead, to take action, to propel the people of God forward, again, as every follower of Christ should. Now, thirdly and crucially, Moses learns patience. Moses goes through considerable hardship so that he might be a more effective leader. Again, secular wisdom picks up on this. So you all, as we all have been through difficult times in life, so we do know that when we endure difficult times, that that can then be used to help others uh, be built up in the Lord and to advance in their own ministries, right? The toughest things we go through, God can actually use those to advance his causes. And so he does with Moses. Now, how old is he when he first articulates a call to ministry? Moses is at probably earlier, but we know by the age of 40, he is called to ministry. How do we know this? Again, we get help from Stephen. So when Moses strikes down the Egyptian to defend the Hebrew, listen to what Stephen says. Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand but they did not understand. Moses, when he's 40, right, he stands up for the people of God. He's expecting, he says, he has a call that he's to be the deliverer after all these years. He, he knows deep down, he's, he's got an inner call and he looks around for the external call and it's not there. See, I compare it to this, say, when I felt, right, God moving me, say, I had an inner call to be a pastor at Providence Church. Say, I, I, I felt God's call, say, I, I want to be a pastor at that church. That's entirely different from the external call of whether the search committee and the church family would have me. You see, those are two different things, an internal call and an external call. And what separates those is the perfect timing of God. Moses at age 40 has an internal call that God is going to use him to deliver the people. And instead of that being validated, that the people of God actually reject him as a leader. Isn't that irony, right, in that second situation with the two Hebrews? Isn't that a line of irony if there ever was one? Who appointed you, Moses, to be our leader? <laughs> Say, well, boy, is he gonna be one of the greatest leaders of all time, because God in his timing, in his perfect timing, would establish Moses to lead his people. So you can see he waits, and how long does he wait? He goes down into Midian, and he has to wait another 40 years. Moses does not start his public ministry until he's 80, which is why all my mentors are at least 80. Uh, so, you know, you might be sitting there saying, Does God, you know, is he kind of put me out to pasture here? I'm way past my prime, and I've, you know, spent my whole life not even thinking about these things. You say, well, Exodus chapter 2 is for you, that God is preparing you, using hardship, ready to get you into the game right now. He's given you all the things that he's given you so that you might lead for his sake. So Moses learns patience, he learns how to handle rejection, he learns about God's timing, the right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing. So Moses learns these lessons, and then wonderfully, another lesson here. Midian is quite remote. You say maybe in the back of your Bible you have a, a map, and you see Midian is Mediterranean, it's really in Saudi Arabia. It's, it's kind of no man's land at this time. I mean, it's not even Sinai. It's on the east side of the Gulf of Aqaba. It's rural. And so Moses, by faith, goes there. And for 40 years, he shepherds, 
He's a shepherd in the Sinai wilderness. <laughs> Say, well, that's going to come in really handy for what's ahead because he's going to be out in the wilderness shepherding people. What looks from Moses' standpoint that God's promise has been forgotten, that he's been left behind, that this inward call to do something for God's people must not be true. Say, all that had to be the case for Moses, but why? Because God is preparing him for just the right time and just the right season to lead in his context the way that God wants him to lead. So I extend that to you. Say, think of your responsibilities this week as God has prepared you and molded you and given you experiences and disappointments and you felt rejection. Say, could it be that God has given me all that? If I'm his child, I've trusted in Christ. He's given me that so I might lead in a time of hardship for his sake and how this will strengthen us as a church family. Now, all this, I know I'm running over here. You think this story is about Moses and the Egyptians, but can you not see how this, a direct arrow to another savior? Say, do we know of anyone else who escaped an edict of a tyrant in Egypt, who lived for many decades in obscurity, who was raised up not because of natural abilities, but because God appointed him to redeem his people. Say, so we look forward to an even greater Savior, as Moses did, that this is a signpost to the Lord Jesus, that we have a great Redeemer. He's bought us back. Nothing is lost on him. He's given us all that we need to lead for his sake. May we be that kind of people in these times. Much to think about here. I hope you do so in your small groups and throughout the week. But friends, he's prepared us for the task that he has. I'll pray. Lord, I think of Moses, 40 years in Midian, sensing that as the people are more and more oppressed that he's the guy, and yet day after day, month after month, as he's out in that rural part of the world, you said, no, 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 40 years, feeling that rejection, oh, can my mistake with that Egyptian ever be redeemed? And Lord, we get the privilege of looking upon this to say, you prepared Moses. You gave him just absolutely everything he needed from his education uh, to his experiences to the temperament. You, you prepared him for exactly the task you had for him. So we, may we not be shy to say we have confidence that you've prepared us. There's painful things in our life, Lord. You turn to good for the benefit of others. Now's the time for us to lead. So we commit this to you. Help it sink in. May Christ be honored. In his name we pray.